0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These
1: ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
2: When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo.
3: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always by Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm here doing the same old thing. Doing the same (laughs) old, same old. Hey, it's episode 100. Can you believe (laughs) – that's right. I have to edit that out because this is a family show, but, you know, (laughs) we've we've done 100 of these things. Well, it's not true because I think there's eight or nine – Painting Rehab uh, podcast that that they did, so uh, which are lumped into this. And also at some point I got off on the numbering so this actually might be episode (laughs) you know, 107 or something but in the official, you know, I started actually labeling these more correctly uh, in the last 18 months and uh, yeah, episode 100, so we should do something for that. I mean, we can't celebrate because, you know we're, we're in different places right now but what we can do is give the listeners at home uh, we'll do a giveaway. All right, so here's here's what it is. Um, this thing's going up Monday morning, and what we're going to do is pick a, a person from social media, preferably Instagram, who reposts this podcast and tags us in it. Uh, we'll pick a, a winner on Wednesday, and the winner's going to get a free spot at one of our seminars. So that's the, that's the giveaway. So if you're listening to this, like, you don't need to stop right now, but sometime before Wednesday, uh, June 10th, I believe is the date, put it up on your social media, tag us, and uh, we'll randomly draw a, win- a winner, and uh, you'll get a free spot at the uh, Barwell Medicine Seminar. That's that's what's going on for Sweet. episode 100 or 107. It I, I don't know. You know it's, it's somewhere in there. Yeah. In any case, this is the Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast where we kind of go over our research review articles. Uh, We try to give an overview of what we uh, looked at, give some sort of important take-homes, and then try to get you to read the thing because there's just a lot of nuance in there. Uh, As always, you can subscribe to our uh, research review uh, and get the latest nuance in your uh, inbox every month. We send it to you. It's a digital magazine type thing with a great new format. Uh, and you can, as soon as you sign up, you get the first uh, issue delivered to your inbox. You can take 50% off by using the code RESEARCH at checkout. And if you're on the fence, you can check out the January 2020 and January 2019 issues, both for free. So without any further stalling or advertising, let's get into it. Austin, what did you look at this
1: month? Uh, so my choice of topic r- was prompted by a lot of recent discussions in the setting of the current pandemic. Where people have been looking for things that they can do from a lifestyle standpoint, be it diet and/or nutrition or supplementation or any of those kind of things, that uh, could help them reduce their risk of either coming down with COVID or some sort of respiratory infection, um, or kind of or or help them recover from it better, improve their odds of a better outcome, whatever. Uh, so, in particular, vitamin D has been getting discussed a whole lot. Um, as it frequently does in the setting of various health conditions, in particular with respect to respiratory tract infections. People um, who maybe are not familiar with uh, the lingo, there are, you know, upper respiratory tract infections, meaning, you know, up higher in the head and neck kind of uh, 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 areas, what people commonly would describe as as a common cold. And then there are lower respiratory tract infections, i.e. those that get lower down into the airways, into the lungs, like pneumonia itself. Um, And so I thought it would be worth looking into what evidence we have around the use of vitamin D for this outcome of respiratory infections. I like it, especially because, you know,
3: COVID-19 is getting a lot of airplay all over. Not only the mainstream media, just general, the general public is, is, you know, posting their thoughts about it and everybody's talking about it. And then it seems like every other day there's a new, you know, do, do this to prevent, to, to reduce the risk of, uh, of getting it. Or if you do have it, you know, it maybe improves your, uh, course. So vitamin D's definitely been in that discussion and, uh, curi- curious to, to, uh, to hear what you found, you found out now, just for the people li- listening at home, um, in the clinical setting, meaning like if you go to see your doctor, like are people getting tested,
1: like screened for low vitamin D regularly? Uh, what, what's the story there? Yeah. So, uh, some people are, although I'll say that the current evidence that we have, the current kind of clinical practice guidelines would say that there really isn't enough evidence for us to say that like on net balance, that widespread kind of population wide screening for vitamin D levels in a- asymptomatic, um, you know, apparently healthy people, uh, will end up providing a significant benefit downstream. Uh, There are, of course, kind of unique risk subgroups in whom you may be more likely to uh, screen them for vitamin D deficiency or track or follow their vitamin D levels and treat them more aggressively due to whatever risk factor they have. Um, but in general for the, uh, like I said, for the asymptomatic, apparently healthy population, we don't really have great evidence to say that if we just tested everybody and treated them, that we're going to reduce the risk of downstream disease or death. Um, that doesn't stop people from getting tests done. Obviously testing is a, is a very popular thing to do. People always want more information. And so frequently they'll either ask their doctors to order it. And the doctor might say, yeah, whatever, it's fine. It's cheap. It's, uh, you know, we can, we can check it or they might go to a direct to consumer, uh, kind of company and test it themselves. And this has also probably been, particularly in the current, um, you know, the pandemic context, there's even been papers that people start sharing around showing, you know, that might be a cross sectional paper where they take a group of people who are sick with COVID, for example, and they test their vitamin D levels and they find that people who are sicker from COVID have lower vitamin D levels compared to people who aren't as sick from COVID. And and this gets posted uh, and used as evidence that you should supplement vitamin D to improve your outcomes from COVID. And, and this, you know, it's, it's one of those classic situations that I feel like I've ranted about for a very long time, where something superficially like seems that it makes perfect sense. It's like, you know, you might say, yeah, that's just obviously makes sense that you should supplement, but that, that represents a really um, superficial understanding of of how this stuff works. Um, So just one example of how this, that kind of thinking Uh, falls flat is that uh, there's this concept of what are called acute phase reactants in the body. And these are basically proteins or, or or compounds that tend to respond to an inflammatory uh, stimulus or an inflammatory event Either positively, i.e., they their concentrations increase with inflammation, or negatively, their concentrations decrease with inflammation. And vitamin D is one example of what's called a negative acute phase reactant, which means that when you have an inflammatory thing going on, like an infection, for example, um, it tends to go, it tends to decrease. And so, of course, if you're going to check people who are sick with COVID or with anything else, like if I measured vitamin D level on anybody that I treat who has sepsis in the hospital, yeah, their levels are going to be low in the setting of that illness because it goes down in the setting of that illness. Um, It also responds similarly in chronic inflammatory states like obesity, metabolic syndrome, chronic infections, cancer, HIV, things like that. If you check people's vitamin D levels, they'll be low. Um, And you can't just jump from there to say that supplementing those people is fixing the problem entirely, it may be a situation where treating the underlying condition and helping to resolve that underlying kind of inflammatory state, their vitamin D levels might bounce back up on their own. In fact, they they often do. So that's one example of how this stuff is pretty complicated to interpret. And and those cross-sectional studies alone don't help you answer the question of, should I supplement? Rather, what would help you answer that question is a randomized controlled trial of supplementation where you measure a, a good outcome, which is exactly kind of what I looked at this month.
3: Yep. So, just to reiterate, at home, the you might intuit or logically come try, you know, try and apply logic here. Where, oh, if I have low vitamin D levels for whatever reason, I must supplement with vitamin D to get my vitamin D levels back up. But what we have seen, and the reason why the testing, you know, it's not routinely recommended that we test folks in addition to like just jump straight to supplementation, is is because. That doesn't always work, particularly if vitamin D is suppressed due to an inflammatory condition like you just talked about. Then not only does it, you, you might not raise the levels of vitamin D up to, up to normal, but it might not actually improve any outcome. You're just literally taking a supplement to to pad a stat, you know, a, a measure, a lab measurement on a piece of paper, but doesn't actually do anything as far as like outcomes because it's just more complicated than that. I'm not saying that logic doesn't work. I'm just saying that the, your (laughs) premises and your assumptions are just wrong here, which is uh, often the case when we think that the human body is
1: simple and, you know, like a machine in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's why why randomized trials are needed to make uh, confident claims about the efficacy of a particular treatment uh, when it comes to kind of biomedicine, drugs, supplements, things like that. Yep. So we did it. Well, not we, but uh, Martino et
3: al. and colleagues looked at vitamin D and uh, res- uh, acute respiratory tract infections. Um, what So like? how do they do this? Is it a pretty big like sample size across multiple centers or how do they, yeah.
1: they get patients into this? Yeah, I picked this particular study because this is the probably the biggest one that's been getting thrown around recently um, for people to use as evidence to support their recommendation that people should be supplementing. Uh, because if you read the abstract, it does suggest that there is a you know a significant beneficial effect here. so I said let's take a closer look at this and see what what uh, is going on uh, with this study. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis of uh, twenty five different studies, and those twenty five studies included o- over eleven thousand subjects, which is pretty solid in terms of its size um, although although of course we'll we'll get to some other aspects of the individual study sizes later um, but the, the nice thing here is that all the studies were randomized, double-blinded and placebo controlled trials of vitamin D supplementation. That's, Pretty neat. Um, and they were also required to prospectively track data on the incidence of acute respiratory tract infections as a pre-specified outcome. That's also neat. Um, and when you look at the subjects included in the study, they it's actually definitely when you say multiple centers, it's across a variety of different countries around the world. There's a variety of different age ranges, ranging from like infants a few months old all the way up to like real old people. Um and they also in in most but not all of the studies, they had baseline kind of vitamin D level measurements to see where where they were starting at. Um, and then they have these patients, uh, either supplement vitamin D or placebo. Of course, the different studies use slightly different methods as far as their dosing regimens and and how they administered it and, and, uh, what the, what the actual dose was and things like that. That's to be expected in this kind of deal. Um, and they wanted to track, they tracked a whole variety of different outcomes. Of course, the main one of, of interest for folks is uh, uh, the incidence of respiratory tract infections. And sure enough, when you look at the overall kind of the pool data, I'll say, I'll point out that the one other Unique and impressive feature of this study is they did what's called an individual individual patient data meta analysis, meaning that rather than just pool the effects of the different studies as they were reported by the individual uh, initial original investigators, they went to all 25 of these study groups and said, send us your individual patient level data. And then they reanalyzed they're everything using the individual patient level data rather than like the summary statistical data that was provided by the initial researchers, which is not commonly done. That's like a feat to be able to obtain all that stuff. So they had like 11,000 data points that they ended up, you know, collating
3: to make their own conclusions rather than taking conclusions from 25 different randomized controlled trials and just pooling them.
1: Yes, correct. Yeah. That's, That's very elegant. Yeah, gotta, yes. <laughs> gotta tip your cap to them. Very yeah, elegant. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you just initially look at the overall the pool data, and there's a whole slew of different ways to slice and dice this, and ways it was analyzed that I get into in my in my uh, uh, breakdown article of this, but the overall pooling um, of fi- about 5200 patients uh, who had at least one respiratory tract infection who were in the control group and proportion who had at least one respiratory tract infection in the vitamin D group, it looks like about 42 percent or so of patients in the control groups had at least one respiratory tract infection and uh, about 40% of people in the vitamin D group had a respiratory tract infection. So about a, you know, if you look at that from a a typical risk calculation, that would be a about a 2% uh, absolute risk reduction um based on all that pooled data they analyze it a little bit differently they use some other statistical you know fanciness that i that i get into a little bit and has been criticized in some of the 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 responses in the peer review to this study Um, but that's kind of the overall takeaway from what they report based on their analysis of the data and so you could say all right cool like i'm willing to take vitamin d for a two percent reduction absolute risk reduction um, uh, of, of an acute respiratory tract infection. But there are a whole bunch of limitations that I think are really important for people to uh, understand from this paper. And I, and I get into them in detail. But one really big one that I, that I thought kind of jumped out to me was looking at the variety of definitions of what constitutes an acute respiratory tract infection across the different studies. Um, they... You know, like I said, there were 25 studies in included in this meta-analysis and a a substantial number of them used like patient self-report, or they just said that they had some like typical symptoms, like a tiny fraction, only a couple of the papers actually verified the presence of real infection here. Um, And so that kind of change that would change what I would say about this is like, if the effect that we're observing is true, um, then I might suggest that taking this vitamin D supplement can give you that modest kind of risk reduction of having some sort of nonspecific respiratory symptoms. But if they didn't actually prove that patients had infections, then it's kind of difficult for me to claim that it reduces the risk of infection outright. And, it's, and, and of course, I certainly can't extrapolate that, that, that to say that it's going to reduce your risk of COVID because that wasn't part of this at all, even though this paper is being held up in that kind of context. Um, there are a few other limitations that I get into. The other one that I think is worth pointing out is that of course, when you include 25 papers, they're going to be different in size and in methods and things like that. And a very interesting observation is that if you look at which studies tended to show the biggest effects, it was the studies that had the smallest number of, of respiratory, uh, in, uh, tract infection cases. Um, so for example, the, one of the papers that's included had nine cases, And they found their odds ratio for an infection, for respiratory tract infection, was like 0.45, which is a greatly reduced odds uh, of having a a respiratory tract infection. Whereas all three of the biggest uh, uh, studies that had the most respiratory tract infection cases, those tended to have odds of right around one, meaning like this vitamin D didn't seem to do anything, which raises... Suspicion for something called small study bias, where you're more likely to see these bigger effects in tinier studies, um, and the bigger uh, the the bigger studies uh, tended to trend more towards the, the the null quote unquote, i.e. showing no effect, uh, which really also kind of got me a bit suspicious about some of the effects we're seeing, where you might be seeing some uh, less accurate results from the tiny studies and the bigger ones are showing you more of the real effect, but when you pull them all together, the overall effects still still seem to be pulled a little bit in the direction of benefit. So, Overall, I see, I remain skeptical <laughs> about the effectiveness of supplementing vitamin D to reduce the risk of respiratory infection. Um, I think that, you know, it's great that we had a large, this large data set. It's great that we had big, you know, multiple randomized controlled uh, trials being done to show this. It's unfortunate that so few of them actually verified the presence of infection compared to just saying like a patient self-report of like, Oh, I had the sniffles. Um, cause that, You know, that's a non what we call a non-specific symptom, you know, all the time that people might have seasonal allergies or they might get a, you know, have a have a cough because they have some acid reflux or something like that. And you might misinterpret it as as an infection. So um, verifying infection would be would be nice. And um, in addition, when you see that the biggest uh, trials with the most cases tended to show no effect, it just makes you wonder. So that's kind of the overall, although, like I said, there are a number of other limitations that I get into and other aspects of the study and other outcomes that I talk about as well uh, when I get into it in the article. And I assume you also talk
3: about potential harms of just, you know, throwing caution to the wind and just
1: just taking it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I will say on that front that there were that, that there were relatively few adverse event, events that were observed from supplementation in the study, but I think a lot of that had to do with the dosage. So I think that, you know, for the general population who's listening and they're like, I don't really care about all this uh, this stuff with respect to the statistics and whether or not or how big the, the benefit is, I would prefer to supplement because, you know, I want to just do it. I feel like it's generally safe. I would say it probably is generally safe at small to moderate doses. Um, I think that probably most people, if they just said, I'm going to do it anyway, uh, if you're taking less than like a thousand IU a day, then there's like very, 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 very low risk of having an adverse effect. Um, Plenty of people take higher doses than that, but I cannot make a broader recommendation or or suggestion for higher than that just because people's, um, you know, variety of medical, uh, other medical conditions they have and things like that could influence, uh, their risk of developing adverse effects. I mean, I've, I've seen definitely seen some adverse effects of vitamin D toxicity, having excessively high levels, uh, that have arisen for a variety of reasons. Some from supplementation, um, uh, uh, uh one patient, for example, who was prescribed, uh, to take the, the, um, uh, the twelve thousand I use once a oh, week. D two, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for uh, like for uh, for eight weeks or something, and he just took it in eight days straight, and then ended up toxic from it. Um, yep. So that was a, that was a mistake, and then other medical conditions uh, that themselves that can generate vitamin D toxicity, even if you're not supplementing. And so I wouldn't want to make that worse by supplementing on top of an undiagnosed condition like that. So that's why yep. I'm pretty cautious about supplementation in the absence of testing, and I'm also yep. cautious about testing in the absence of a reason to test. That's, that's pretty much my take on it. It's like if somebody wants to take vitamin D
3: and, you know, okay. Because I agree with you that the the risks of side effects will not zero as long as the dose is, you know, relatively low. The risks are also relatively low, although that, you know, gets stratified by patient population demographics too. You know, the yeah. older you get, then that changes. Um, but if you haven't gotten tested, you know, you're really just flying blind because if your vitamin D levels are already like relatively high – I wouldn't want to like push that limit. And, you know, if they, if they are low, there's, you know, kind of this tiered sort of regimen of replenishment. And then you'd want to follow up with further testing, you know, eight weeks later, or some interval t- of time later to make sure that you're, you know, doing it right. But I suppose many people will probably just go to the local grocery store or pharmacy or whatever, and get vitamin D and <laughs> I'd probably take it <laughs> just you know, regardless of what we say
1: here so yeah anyway. i mean there, are there i'm sure there are definitely things that they do or take that have a smaller than a two percent effect size on their on their 100%. outcomes uh 100%. you know perhaps like creatine or something that they're doing yes, yes, yes. but anyway uh, yeah i'm just not uh, sure how confidently we can say that it reduces the risk of infection since a lot of times that's not what we've been measuring as real yeah yeah so. yep. you got to actually measure the infection yeah
3: and 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 define it similarly across studies to actually look at you know infection rates so uh, go figure well so this is the time in the podcast where we flip the script austin becomes the host and i become the guest i guess guest i guess i got trapped in my own sentence structure there uh but you'll note that this month i picked the most important topic in all of resistance training huge effect size huge effect size very important should definitely spend hours and hours, uh, or even longer, debating it, thinking about it, considering it. Where do you put the bar when you squat? <laughs> to optimize to optimize your gains. So, <laughs> I know that you've lost a lot of sleep about this. And, uh, yeah, I just – I really wanted to put this to bed. So, this study is called Kinematic and EMG, which stands for Electromyography Activities During Front and Back Squat Variations in – Maximum loads. This is by Yavuz et Al. This is a, this is a group out of Cyprus. Cyprus is uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, It's just off the coast of Lebanon. That's right. So to the to the west of Lebanon and south of Turkey. There's your geography lesson for the day. Bet you didn't think you were going to get that when you listened to the oh. Barbell Medicine podcast. But here we are. We're just breaking down barriers. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so basically, they were trying to figure out like what differences, if any, are there in muscle excitation. Uh, which is a the the word used to describe effectively motor unit recruitment. Motor unit is a motor neuron, a nerve from the uh, motor uh, that controls muscles, and that and all the muscle fibers that it innervates. So that's a motor unit, and so muscle excitation is a measure of motor unit recruitment. A lot of times, when people read EMG studies, so these are effectively like electrodes stuck to the skin most of the time um, that measures electrical activity of the muscle. Uh, A lot of times, people will talk about muscle activation. And that's not necessarily the case because muscle activation is basically muscle excitation plus anything else that's going on at the level of the muscle, like. Did a previous, like, was there any eccentric contraction, so muscle lengthening that occurs before the concentric, because that actually changes the amount of activation, but it doesn't change the amount of excitation. Or are there other sort of things going on that are unrelated to electrical activity, which is not measured by EMG? So the correct sort of nomenclature here is muscle excitation when you're looking at EMG studies. It effectively tells you how many motor units are recruited, um, and so they wanted to see Were there any differences between a front squat and a back squat? Um, and what they also did is they placed all these markers on the, the subjects and the barbell to determine if what joint angle differences there were, if any, between the back squat and a front squat. Because again, you'd want to further characterize like, well, if there was a difference in motor unit recruitment, which is measured by EMG, why? like can we figure out is there like a biomechanical reason um and the best part about this is they did it at one rm loads because this study's already been done at like 70 percent so basically people were front squatting 70 percent or high bar back squatting 70 percent and and even lighter loads than that and thus far they haven't been able to find a difference in muscle uh, muscle excitation haven't been able to find a difference so they were like well maybe it just because it wasn't a one rm so they did it at one rms uh and and so the what you're trying to figure out, you know, this is a, what's called a surrogate endpoint, surrogate measure, which basically is, is a proxy for things you actually care about. Because when people are training, when you're doing squats, for example, you don't really care like, well, what is my motor unit recruitment right now? That's, you don't care. You, one, you just want to complete the task. But two, you would, the real things that you're concerned about is like, well, how much of a hypertrophy stimulus is this? And how much of a strength stimulus is this? I mean, really, that's why you're resistance training, right? Um, even if you're just resistance training for health purposes, you, you want to get stronger. We have some decent evidence there. And you want to gain lean body mass. We have some some good evidence there, too. So you don't really care about, quote, unquote, motor unit recruitment. And you certainly don't care about EMG. You really care about, like, you know, the long-term outcomes. And so what we're using here is EMG as a proxy, a surrogate, like I mentioned earlier, to determine, like, was one exercise have a greater potential to get me jacked, hypertrophy, or get me strong, strength? So they took 12 dudes and they had them work up to a 1RM high bar back squat uh, and front squat. Now, I will say this. They were both above parallel because <laughs> what they determined, like the, the, the depth that they determined was uh, 90, a 90-degree 90 uh, knee angle. Yeah, so, and, uh, so a Joel Seedman perfect squat. Yeah, yeah. and so they, they only had one picture of like the actual testing sort of procedure. Um, and it, they both looked above parallel, although it wasn't from the side. So, you know, you could argue about that, particularly if you compete in the SPF or, you know, the <laughs> XPC or whatever, because it's from the front. You can't judge depth from the front, but they looked pretty high, uh, maybe like an inch or two above parallel. Uh, if I'm being charitable, maybe right to parallel. But uh, in any case, they weren't to IPF depth. And so, you know, you have to kind of interpret these findings as is. Uh, And they had surface uh, EMG on the quads, on the hamstrings, on the glutes, and erectors. And they had them work up to a 1RM and a high bar squat and a a front squat. And then just kind of compared values. And, uh, you know, plot twist despite the front squat being substantially lighter than the high bar squat high bar back squat, the motor unit recruitment was the same in virtually all the muscle groups and and, and you wouldn't necessarily expect that if you're if you think you know like oh heavier is better or you know doing a squat where you bend over more because they the, the high bar back squat did have a, a greater trunk, Angle they they bent over much more significantly more on the high bar squat than the front squat, and so then you might predict like oh their their erectors are going to be more excited you know working more or their glutes are going to be working more or their hamstrings certainly right nope no statistically stat- statistically significant difference, and that's just a statistically significant difference that could be very small right but there, there wasn't even that. The only statistically significant difference in muscle excitation they saw was at the level of the quadriceps, specifically the vastus medialis. And it was a pretty small difference, like 7%, uh, which to me means absolutely nothing. Because we don't actually see differences in like hypertrophy or strength in a particular muscle group unless that difference is much, much greater. The other data we have on this is between like single joint isolation movements, like a leg extension, and how that compares to a leg press or a squat. And the quadriceps excitation is much, much higher in a leg extension than it is in a leg press. And there's some data showing that you get better hypertrophy outcomes of the quadriceps with the leg extension, although that data is, you know, confounded by... The fact that individuals respond to training much, much differently. The volumes, you know, weren't equated. Although, you you know, one would argue you can do much more volume of a leg extension than a leg press because you don't get as fatigued. But anyway, that's all covered in my article here. The, the point is, and what I think we should talk about for a second, is there weren't really any big differences in muscle excitation between the two variations. And so the listener at home is thinking – well how the hell is that possible the front squat's much lighter than the high bar back squat and they're different movements you know so so what's the deal what you have to understand is that muscles produce force by recruiting motor units and the way they increase the force production is by recruiting them more frequently you have about the same level of motor unit recruitment as far as amount of muscle mass being told to like contract between like 50% to 90% of a 1RM. Meaning that if you did a back squat with 50% and a back squat of 90%, you're calling on about the same number of motor units. The difference is at 90%, you're calling on that same number of motor units more frequently. You're saying, it's like, it's Morse code, you know, beep, 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 beep. You're just, you're really trying to get them to go. Um, but yeah, you're using the same amount of motor unit, like muscle mass between at, between 50 and 90%. So we we wouldn't expect that two similar movements, similar meaning that they're using a similar range of motion, similar uh, muscle groups, you know, um, we wouldn't expect them to actually recruit wildly different amounts of motor
1: units. Particularly when they're taken to a reasonable degree of effort, would you say? The same amount of effort, yeah. 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 Um, So then
3: the question is, well, like, What's happening? How come these same muscle groups that are recruiting the same amount of motor units you know, at roughly the same frequency because this is a 1RM, right? So they're all like maxed out. How come they can lift more weight in a high bar squat or we could extrapolate this further in a low bar squat? Well, you just change the context of which the muscle is actually producing force. You change its leverage. You change the length of the muscle. You changed the joint angle by which it's acting through. You change the velocity in which it's acting. You change one or more of any of those things, you're changing the leverage. So effectively, it, you can you know put yourself in a more advantageous position. And so the amount of force that the muscle can create is higher. But it doesn't mean the muscle's working harder. It's just more efficient, has a greater mechanical advantage. And so when you're trying to extrapolate that, like all of that what's just said into like okay well enough gobbledygook science talk how does that actually practically apply to hypertrophy outcomes muscle mass or strength outcomes well you can get equivalent hypertrophy outcomes with any squat variation provided that you actually prefer it enough to be adherent to the program and that you can train it often enough frequently enough with the high enough volume to drive progress right so if you have somebody who like i prefer overhead squats and you're like okay weird choice but you know (laughs) whatever but they can only do two rep two reps or let's even be more charitable two sets you know to near failure per workout it's like well i don't know that you can do this enough right right? because it's too fatiguing for example um you know so you might want to Pick a different variation that allows them to train it a little more, but outside of that, in preference for hypertrophy uh, from a hypertrophy standpoint, it doesn't really matter. I would not expect the high bar back squat to produce better hypertrophy uh, outcomes than the front squat, or vice versa, or low bar back squat. I figured they'd all be about equivalent outside of individual differences in response and you know tolerance of training them. Meaning, like again, that they could actually train them frequently, low, you know, increase volume over time. With respect to strength outcomes, it's a similar thing. It, it And it depends how you're going to test the strength. If you're going to test the strength in a non-specific manner, meaning that let's say you were trying to equate uh, uh, or trying to figure out which was better a better squat variation for strength, low bar back squat or front squat, and you're going to test strength b- via a leg press, which is, you know, significantly different than both of those things you wouldn't expect any difference really they're both training similar muscle groups through a similar range of motion you're going to have similar amount of motor unit recruitment and frequency of motor unit recruitment and the way that you're testing the strength is not specific to either movement if you were going to test strength you know outcomes via low bar back squat well guess which one's better yeah a low our back squats. Like I feel, yeah. you know, I, I feel like this shouldn't be controversial, but I know that it is Yeah, because people think that if you, if the, if the variation that you're choosing is
1: heavier, it's better. And that's not true. Yeah. I think that there are, uh, un- generally unappreciated or underappreciated trade-offs to a lot of these decisions. In other words, the idea, the, or the assumption that heavier is always better, like for all these outcomes, maybe not recognizing the the trade-off or the the, the fatigue costs that might come with that kind of thing, you know, if a person's goal is not to maximize load on the bar for that particular task. Yeah, 100%,
3: which is why, you know, some of this isolation stuff or other variations that are less fatiguing, but equivalently, or maybe even in some cases, greater amounts of stimulation can be applied. So like, I know this is blasphemous, but, uh, I think you can actually stimulate the quadriceps a little bit better doing something like a leg extension than a low bar back squat. And certainly with less
1: fatigue. Meaning that you could do more of it. Yes. Yeah, we we end up using this quite a bit in in the rehab context as well, because we end up rehabbing a lot of folks who who kind of come in with that that mindset or they're wanting to go back to their, you know, main preferred movements and go as heavy as they can. And we kind of have to deprogram that a little bit and get them to buy into a rehab plan that might include a little bit more variety or some exercises that may have, they may have previously perceived as inferior, but will work just fine to provide a tolerable stimulus to the area that doesn't, you know, light up their symptoms the way going way heavier on the exercise they previously wanted to do uh, does.
3: Yep. Yep. It's just, you know, there are compromises to every decision you make in programming and, you know, depending on what you actually want to get out of your training, you know, some of those may be reasonable and some of them probably you shouldn't tolerate. Um, I, I think the vast majority of people listening to this podcast are interested in getting stronger because they enjoy that process. And when I say strength, understanding that there are many different types of strength, speed, strength, strength, endurance, maximal strength, you know, et cetera. What I'm talking about is maximal strength. They want to get their one rep max up. And so, yeah, You know, uh, uh, some, if not even the majority at different points of the work that you're going to do is going to be lifting heavy weights, you know, but that doesn't mean that all of it is at all times of your training and that heavier is always necessarily better that the heavier variation is all, always necessarily better it's just how does the whole program look and how does a pers- uh, a particular exercise variation fit within the programming constraints so we actually actually put like a little thought experiment in here uh to get coaches to think about this stuff a little bit differently and hopefully they find that useful but you should read the article it'll it might uh uh open open your eyes to some some new things Cool man. Sweet. That's it. Austin, thank you for uh, joining me here. Let's go to some of the, our two other contributors, Dr. Derek Miles and Dr. Michael Ray, and see what they wrote about this month.
0: My name is Derek Miles. I am a physical therapist for the next week in Mountain View, California, before relocating to Cincinnati, Ohio.
3: We're back with Dr. Derek Miles. You probably wrote one of the most important pieces uh, for our research review ever, at least in my opinion. Um, it's about lowering – you titled it Lowering the Bar to Implement Physical Activity Guidelines. And this is from a 2020 study titled Effects of Physical Activity Recommendations on Mindset, Behavior, and Perceived Health by Zart and Krum. This is from 2020. So h- how did you even find this? Like what journal was it in? Uh, if you recall, and like, how did you come across this, this paper? I've been so deep down a, a
0: physical activity rabbit hole recently that I think is just the, the algorithms that B put this across my feed. It's just all the data that we have now on the lack of participation or lack of activity uh, in the general population. You start seeing some things that it starts out with this kind of damning like how do we get in this situation and then it goes into well we start talking about what our recommendations are and then you start getting into the behavior side of like how do we affect change and this certainly falls into the like how do we affect change how do we get people to start wanting to be more active or have them perceive themselves as capable of being active
3: right because because some of it is like People probably can't don't even think that it's something that's accessible to them, or that they can't even start. Uh, which I assume is what they mean by mindset. So, like, the first first question is, how are they measuring mindset or defining that in the paper? So they had a,
0: a survey that they had individuals participate in, and it was a bit of an amalgam from some other validated measures. But it was a series of questions such as rating uh, my current level of physical activity is healthy. My current level of physical inactivity is unhealthy. Um, how harmful is your current level of physical activity for your health? And how much is your current level of physical inactivity or activity strengthening or weakening your muscles? And they were trying to gauge people who had higher self-efficacy in their ability to be active. Now, the study is not without limitations because it was, it was actually done at Stanford. Um, and it was done with a large bolus of the cohort being 20-somethings. And if you look at just the overall data set that they came from, it was interesting because current evidence says that about 78% of people aren't meeting physical activity guidelines. And this cohort in general was far exceeding them. Now. It gets into some of the problems with subjective report, but it also is like if you've spent time on a college campus, you have no choice but to walk long distances. Even if you drive to campus, it's a mile from where you park to where you go in.
3: Yeah, so effectively this age group and demographic, so like college, not not only college age, but college attending individuals would be the most some of the most likely individuals to either meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines. Whereas when you like go younger or older, it gets much, much worse. And uh, you know, you said that 78% of Americans aren't meeting the guidelines. I think you and I both agree that it's probably much higher than that, because that's just self-reported. Effectively people saying, yeah, I uh I meet these guidelines, but and most people overestimate the guidelines. So like if you you strap a fancy Fitbit to somebody and you see how how many steps they're taking per day, or how much aerobic exercise, for example, they're getting. Um, that number probably creeps up closer to ninety percent of the United States not meeting the current guidelines, and uh, that's a real problem. You know, physical inactivity is on the top five WHO you know directed uh, uh, health problems for preventable preventable disease, and uh, costs us a lot of money. Now, that's I say that knowing full well that some people hear the the you know phrase or term who and they're like nope i don't trust anything coming out of out of them and it's like that's for another podcast (laughs) yeah but this is a this is a serious deal so um all right so that that, it seems like a good way to define mindset and then kind of get a a baseline of these behavior uh uh sort of like self self self-reported behaviors um was there a connection between like how much physical activity that people reported doing and like their perceived health did that correlate? Well, you would assume that it does, but I'd just be curious if they, what they found there. So they asked them this survey and then the key to the
0: overall study itself is then they introduced them to the physical activity guidelines. And there were two sets one they referred to as low as liber, low and liberal, which were based off the 1996 CDC recommendations, which basically just recommends 150 minutes of moderate level physical activity. And the good part about these recommendations is it was much more inclusive of things like walking, gardening, you know, things that would probably be closer to activities of daily living versus true leisure, physical activity. And then the other group was shown the department of health and human services 2018 uh, recommendations, which is 150 minutes of moderate level physical activity or 75 minutes of vigorous activity and two times a week of muscle strengthening exercises. And these guidelines were not as inclusive of activities such as walking couldn't be considered part of being active. Yeah. And then they followed up with those individuals in a week and gave them the same survey and had kind of a reflective conversation about how they perceived themselves to be meeting physical activity guidelines.
3: Right. So it's effectively one group has a much lower barrier to entry because just like literally do anything everything qualifies as physical activity and the other group not only has uh uh like additional criteria that you have to meet in order to get to the guideline minimums but it's more it's uh, more exclusive too because you know just leisurely you know gardening's probably not gonna fit the bill here um so what what do they find uh between the, the differences between the two groups as far as like how they responded to them
0: Well, the ones who were given uh, more stringent criteria did perceive it to influence how they saw their own physical activity. So if, if you're given a higher bar, you're more likely to not think you are meeting it. And part of what they looked at out of this too was they called it moderating effects. And I'd never really read about moderating effects or mediating effects before. And it essentially is how much other variables influence the outcome besides just what you're looking at. And in this instance, they also looked at self-efficacy and had a short questionnaire on individuals' own self-efficacy and looked at how much that mediated the influence of it. We're more prone to have discussions about confounders. And that is some variable that influences the everything about the study. So whether it be socioeconomic status or gender, whereas self-efficacy is going to play a role in your perception of how you adjust to the information given. And so this was a really good way of, of seeing how some of the other factors play or some factors such as self-efficacy play into how it titrates your own perception. You know, if you take someone with high self-efficacy and show them a stringent outcome or a stringent criteria, they're more likely to not see it in a negative light versus someone with lower self-efficacy might see that as creating a much bigger gap for injury.
3: Yeah. This is something that is also obviously been studied in the, you know, uh, Medical field and uh, the term that has been used in the literature is called patient activation. So, effectively, if a patient views themselves as being responsible for their own health outcomes, they believe that they are not only uh, can change them and change and thus change the outcome. They also feel like empowered, like they have the the skills and the knowledge and the resources to do so. They're more likely to make that behavioral change, and so thus viewing like a uh, a set of stringent criteria in a more positive light because they're like, all right, I got this. in 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 short whereas a person who has a low level of activation low level a patient with low uh, levels of activation they view themselves as not necessarily responsible for their own health outcomes they can't modify the outcome they can't modify their behavior they don't have the resources they don't have the skills etc and so they view these things in a negative light because they're like i don't i can't do this and it's not my responsibility to do it anyway and so the thought behind these like behavioral change sort of counseling techniques motivational interviewing for example is to like increase patient activation um, and there are a number of tests that you can kind of like gauge somebody's self-efficacy or in this case patient activation so it sounds like exactly what you'd expect to find knowing that uh, that people with low levels of self-efficacy were like nah dog i'm good and the people who, who had high levels of self-efficacy were like all right bring it on i got this i can i can change
0: yeah. And, you know, you look at it from the messaging that we send out in oh, fitness industry at large has this predisposition towards the green check red X and the whole narrative, you know, running's bad for your knees, squatting's bad for your back. If you ascribe to certain rehab schools of thought, you can even breathe wrong if you're not epically doming the right part of your diaphragm and before that, <laughs> like... I really wish that was hyperbole, but that there really is people out there that believe that and they'll have them lay supine with their feet on the wall, blowing up a balloon, talking to them about activating certain parts of their diaphragm. And at that point, like if you can't squat, you can't run. And apparently you can't even breathe properly for athletic activity. It really is like, well, what can you do? You've created such a gap that, or you've, Basically, made physical activity or just being active so complicated that individuals aren't likely to want to do it.
3: So you're you're a proponent of uh, maybe lowering the bar.
0: Yes. Well, it's but it's still it's like the same conversation we have with investing, and you hear the trope or the fact about certain proportion of Americans do not have adequate savings or, you know, more than $2,000 in a savings account. And then you'll hear an advertisement for some retirement fund that says by age 35, you should have four times your annual salary. And you're like, well, dear God, I don't have $1,500. Like how am I going to ever start this? And the problem is to your point, like it disincentivizes people to take that first step. And you don't realize that, you know, even if you're putting in $20 a week, that's better than $0 a week. And if you're putting in 20 minutes of physical activity a week, that is much better than zero minutes of physical activity. A week.
3: Oh, 100%. And, and they even say that that's probably the biggest change between the 2008 and 2018 guidelines is they they make repeated cases for even shorter bouts of physical activity, uh, uh, down from 10 minutes to five minutes, and even any physical activity uh, compared to zero. Uh, they really do make a strong case for that, and, and there's substantial evidence there. So, uh, effectively, and, and I'm in agreement with you. Is is the recommendation would be whatever you got to do to get somebody working towards meeting these minimums. And the I, the idea is we get people to exceed them, right? But like that can't be the their entry point for for a lot of folks. It's where can you you know meet them where they're at, get them working towards that, and then ideally you're building self-efficacy giving them the resources, tools, the sort of empowering them so that they can kind of, you know, increase that over time rather than saying, well, here's where you have to start. Here's that, here's that amount, because you're just going to be exclusive. You know, you're going to exclude a lot of people who would benefit from, from exercise.
0: Well, you know, and there is a really good correlation between just these recommendations in this study and a lot of the discussion regarding progressing athletes, whether it be with weight or whatever, you know, there is, or there are camps that have the, you have to have perfect technique before we ever start loading you. And if you do that, you're never going to start loading someone. <laughs> right.
3: I'm still and, waiting to have a perfect squat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still <it's>,
0: waiting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it is this whole you know, you were always going to strive towards being better, but we have to look at where we are right now and see if we can just do a little bit more. And that emphasis is on that little bit more out of it. And too often we end up creating this big gap to where, you know, there, there are recommendations in camps that are, are like, you shouldn't participate in physical activity without professional supervision. Like, well, if I have to unload a, bunch of concrete out of the back of my truck. Do I need to hire a personal trainer to make sure I'm doing it right? And and it just doesn't have any face validity when you get into it. But I think we have turned leisure activity somehow into way too stringent of a criteria to where not only have we taken the enjoyment out of it, we've taken a lot of people's ability or or perception of their ability to do it away from them.
3: We're we're making it more restrictive. Like you, you can only do this if you've, you know, got somebody watching you who's well-trained and, you know, has this certification or, (laughs) or whatever, because something bad might happen if you're, if you're, if you don't. But I think the risk of not doing anything far outweighs any risk associated with exercise, even if you were a high risk population um, most of the time. But, you know, to be clear, most people are not at high risk of bad things happening to them from exercise just as a, as a baseline. So, uh, that's, that's, uh, one of those, those sticky issues where, you, you know, uh, uh, where you, you kind of go back and forth, like, do people really need a physician to sign off on them engaging in physical activity? Right. Uh, and, and my, my response is probably not for the majority of individuals, but I can understand from a medical legal standpoint, like why you have to say what you're saying, uh, that I do not, I feel the exact opposite of that forever or, uh, for the record, uh, with respect to like technique and coaching, like you absolutely do not need a coach or somebody, you know, teaching you how to do the exercise with a particular type uh, technique or form in order to be safe in the gym. You you absolutely do not need that to start. You can, you know, go to give it the old college try. And even if it's wrong, you're likely to be okay, provided you're loading the thing appropriately for your previous level of activity.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting in the sports performance research realm, because there's always this statement that's made of everything works on an untrained individual. And we tend to use that argument to discount people overweighing whatever this certain study they're trying to cite is. But from a strictly global health standpoint, it's awesome that everything works on an untrained individual. Cause that means we
3: have so many different options with which to get people moving. Yep. Yeah. You can, you can literally do almost anything for, you know, the, the actual criteria, the, the stuff that matters is a uh, pretty, Low bar, like make sure you're training all the muscle, the major muscle groups, for example, (laughs) make sure, you know, you're starting with relatively lightweights and, you know, increasing that and training volume over time. Make sure you're participating in some aerobic training, the type, the mode is relatively unimportant, you know, outside of very specific goals, but you don't need to create all these, you know, roadblocks or obstacles to participating. You should just do it today, Mm -hmm. now. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Very cool. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us on the Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast. Next week, you'll be in Cincinnati. The I'll others
0: driving. Yes. Driving to Cincinnati.
3: <laughs> yeah. So next month it'll be Derek miles potentially within a whole nother job title. And then people are going to have to, we're going to reintroduce you all over again. It's, it's just a thing, but yeah. uh, <laughs> make sure you go follow Derek underscore Barbell Medicine on Instagram. Check out uh, his Traveling with Adhesion series, and uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next month.
2: This is Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm also a rehab clinician for Barbell Medicine remotely.
3: Dr. Michael Ray, back with the Barbell Medicine Research Review. This is a June edition, and you don't know this because, you know, you don't listen to the whole episode before like before your section, but this is episode one hundred of the podcast what so I know we turned a century, although to be completely honest, like my counting skills are rudimentary at best, and i i and am like labeling I messed that up at some point, so this might be like one o five, but it's one hundred on the our podcast like feed, and so I decided to give away a free spot at our seminar, so oh, that's cool what's well, good yeah, so like this goes up Monday. So June eighth, it'll go up seven a.m. Eastern time, Wednesday nine p.m. Pacific Standard Time is a cutoff. People posting it on Instagram, social media, whatever, will find you and randomly pick a person to come to our seminar for free. So uh, that's all. Do awesome. that. Do that stuff. Yeah. yeah. We turned a Century uh, now for something completely different. Mike, you you you, you messed up. You violated your own rule.
2: because <laughs> the whole idea, yeah,
3: <laughs> The whole idea with the research review was to pick an article and then review that topic and that particular article and see how that fits into the whole like, you know, the totality of the evidence, the landscape of the evidence. Yes. And, uh, you know, see what sort of practical implications that that may have. Um, but, you know, you decided, eh, this is my research review. This is my baby. <laughs> I'll do what I want you decided to just tackle the entire evidence-based practice sort of topic. Yeah. Uh, and then, so your article is titled, I Want to Believe. Um, what, like, okay, why did you do this? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs>
2: how did you get here? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so the the reason I wrote this up this month is uh, I, I am a member of the uh, Unified Virginia Chiropractic Association, And so there's been a lot of discussions around the utility of joint manipulations. And then, uh, unfortunately, the context of immunity, which is a whole nother conversation that we don't need to get into. But there was a lot of like citations for some not so great studies. And oftentimes what I hear, not just in this particular discussion, but other ones with clinicians is, well, it's published research or it's a randomized controlled trial. And then therefore it has utility and we should be doing this in clinical practice. So that's kind of where it got birthed out of was just the desire to write down like, well, what is evidence? How do we define that? And then more importantly, how does that fit into the context of clinical practice? And, and in essence, I would say, is kind of the foundation of like why we have the research review or why we really tout being evidence-based at Barbell Medicine.
3: So yeah, it's effectively gives people a peek behind the curtain of like our one of our core values, our ethos, if you will, yeah. to like use evidence to put forth good information, good practically a, a, applicable sort of uh, guidelines. And uh, yeah, so, so then you have to work backwards from there and say, well, all right, well, what is evidence? And yep. like, why does this matter? And, you know, I think if you're not in the healthcare field, this may be a little bit less familiar to you, you know, outside of us discussing it. But, you know, prior to the evidence-based medicine sort of movement, uh, it, you know, the, what really you could describe medical practice as like eminence based medicine so yeah. effectively somebody with like charisma and charm and he was well known could effectively say something and there was no like fact check on that <laughs> to make sure that it was accurate it was just like oh okay so that's what we're doing now yep. because this person had a good reputation um but as we see time and time again not only it, it's not just a, a problem with the person it's just if the if the actual claim doesn't live up to the hype you can actually do a lot of harm and and, and lead people astray so let's let's give the listeners at home kind of uh, a 10,000 foot view of this when we talk about evidence what does that actually mean
2: yeah so I give a couple of like real world real world examples of just like Imperial data or uh, empirical data is a way to talk about it it's like our sensory observations sensory inputs data that we gather from that so like if you wake up in the morning and you hear what sounds to be like water droplets hitting your tin roof of your house, you might think to yourself like, oh, maybe it's raining. And then you walk over to your window and look outside and sure enough, you see water falling from the sky and you see it cooling. So that is one source of evidence that you've used the sensory information available to you to make and hopefully informed decisions with, you know, maybe you take a rain jacket that day or an umbrella, but then trying to take that and place it into clinical practice. I think a lot of times people hear us say, well, that's just anecdote, or that just doesn't matter. I mean, in actuality, uh, every day we use kind of our observations to make clinically informed decisions. The difference is, is it gets a little sketchy when we're trying to make informed decisions about what interventions we should be doing, or prognosis, or how relevant is what's currently happening to this patient patient in front of us, or how relevant is this finding. And so, just trying to figure out if anything has potential to be evidence, we need some type of hierarchy to make informed decisions, and that's really where kind of evidence-based practice was birthed out of in the nineties, like you were saying was figuring out how do we use best current evidence to make more informed collaborative decisions with our patients.
3: And and it's this whole evidence-based practice movement and even dating back before that, like when people started doing very well uh, uh, sort of designed clinical trials and using that to inform a practice prior to that, a lot of the sort of blunders in medicine were, you know, commonplace. You know, and so people will use these these stories. Well, yeah, doctors used to, you know, do bloodletting or give people yeah. like, you know, heavy metals to do. This. It's like, well, yeah, but none of those were like supported by clinical trials. Yep. None of those was like that wasn't an evidence based sort of decision. Uh, we were literally just making it up as we went. You know and so that's one of the biggest differences between the era of modern medicine you know and and what we did before that doesn't mean that we haven't been like that the evidence hasn't shifted over time given new ways of studying things more elegant ways of researching things and actually measuring outcomes um you know certainly clinical practice has changed and continues to evolve as we collect new data but the idea like that you know doctors are just stupid we don't know anything we're just you know making yeah. the same mistakes over and over again. It's like, well, we're in a different era now. Um, although philosophically, you could argue that, you know, given a long enough duration of time, everything we know now will be wrong yeah. in the future. So yep. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully people, I didn't just lose a bunch of people there because they're like, wait, <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> all right. So you cover evidence and then you, you start talking about the hierarchy. Yeah. Now, if, pe- if people listen to Barbell Medicine Research Review or some of the other podcasts we've been on, they've, you know, definitely heard of the double-blind, randomized, controlled trial. Yeah. And that's supposed to be the gold standard, you know, for many different applications in clinical medicine. Um, what would be the worst form of evidence? If that's the best, what's the worst?
2: I mean, making decisions just off of your observations alone. And that's kind of what the piece goes through is this idea of like cognitive biases and fallacious reasoning and how some things sound to you perfectly reasonable and rational. And then we observe it and we do systematic observations with studies, whether it's RCTs or some other type, you know, maybe epidemiological, where we're looking at like related risk factors to things. And we're like, well, you know, that actually wasn't well correlated. And that was a bit fallacious reasoning. Um, so that's kind of like the whole whole purpose and premise of this is just trying to figure out are your unsystematic observations that you're seeing actually matching up with better controlled studies, whether that is RCTs or some other applicable study design for the questions we're asking?
3: So how do you respond to the criticism, you know, or maybe the claim like, well, you don't need evidence for everything, you know, is all of all of your decisions. Are they always evidence based, Dr. Ray?
2: No, not at all. I mean, it, it comes down to like going back to the rain scenario. Uh, my decision making is really only going to affect me. If I see it, if I hear what I think to be is rain and then I visually see rain and I'm just like, yeah, whatever. And I don't take a rain jacket or maybe I walk to work instead of driving anyways, I'm the one getting wet. You know, other people may be affected if I have a bad mood the rest of the day because of it, but ultimately the risk is pretty much on me. But when we take that approach to clinical practice, it's no longer isolated to just the clinician or a single individual. We're now talking about from a public health standpoint, a lot of people, entire populations or a clinician-patient relationship, at least one other person is going to be negatively affected by your decision making.
3: Yeah, and a lot of this has to do with the proportion of risk yes. to a decision. So, so, and that, and that actually carries over to like the types of studies that are done. Uh, so, so, for example, very few studies uh, are designed to measure the risk of harm, and what I mean by that is. They're designed to look at a potential benefit, and if they happen to find that there's harms, that's like a surprise. Uh, uh, you're, you're, there has to be some sort of thought like that this particular intervention may, you know, may work or provide benefit, and if it does provide harm, it, it does result in harm. Then people are like, oh dang it, usually yeah. you, gotta, you stop the trial. Um, yeah. But for example, there are no like, randomized controlled trials where one group of patients has to drink a chemical solvent that is thought to maybe be carcinogenic. carcinogenic. <laughs> and the, and right. then there's a control group where they don't drink that. You're just like, yeah, let's see if you guys get cancer. And I, I'm not trying to make light of cancer. I'm just saying that studies aren't designed that way. Yeah. They're designed rather where like, there's this expectation that there's some benefit here rather than there's an expectation that there's some harm um yeah. even if the study is actually looking you know uh measuring potential harms that's you want to do that just to make sure you're not missing anything but when you design studies it's usually for a uh an expected benefit and um uh, so so we talk about uh the, the next claim that people will make with respect to like this hierarchy of evidence we kind of already discussed you know anecdotal data yeah or anecdotal evidence, rather, not anecdotal data. What, what's your response to, uh, you know, well, the plural of anecdote is data.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's very flawed data. So you have to put that into perspective, because you could have motivated reasoning, uh, confirmation bias, like, we can't actually always trust our sensory inputs, <laughs> which is a whole nother conversation. Um, yep. so you, you've got to weight that. And as a clinician, we did a podcast this uh, previously on epistemic responsibility. You know, We have a pretty responsible position in which we're trying to inform someone with our knowledge base about what's the best thing we could do collaboratively for their situation. And so I personally would want to have the best available data and evidence available to me that's not just my biased observations. But a very real situation we're all currently dealing with would be COVID-19, where we don't have very specific data to COVID-19. So I'm just starting to come out now. But then we have to generalize from other findings about how do we mitigate the spread of infectious diseases with like hand washing and social distance or physical distancing and everything else. So this really gets at the root of science as a method, which I think a lot of people miss in this whole evidence based medicine or evidence based practice movement was it it was meant to to use science as a method to inform clinical practice, which is having systematic controlled for observations in which we can make more reliable Hopefully, um, uh, more valid, so to speak, to make decisions.
3: So, all right, last question, because you know, I like to troll people. That's that's sure. you know, some people think it's endearing, other people think it's annoying. It just really depends.
2: Go for it. <laughs> <I'll>, well, <yeah. laughs>
3: well, Mike, you know, since you're an evidence based, you're you're you know, promoting evidence based practice and this and the other. How can you do that as a chiropractor?
2: Yeah, I mean, so my usual response to that is how does anyone do it, whether you're an MD or a physical therapist or anything? And, you know, you just got to do the best you can as a a person that has a professional title. You're afforded decision making abilities, uh, specifically in a lot of contexts as it relates to interventions. So as a chiropractor, it would be figuring out what's allowable within my scope of practice. And then based on that allowability, what do I have supportive data for? saying, recommending, or doing with patients. Um, And that's how I approach that situation. So I think you've just got to be willing to to make more informed decisions as best as possible. And then the kind of under or the overarching thing to all of this is, is looking at answering the question, how do you know what you think you know? What evidence have you used to substantiate your belief system? And this could be much broader than just I'm a chiropractor or I'm an MD or I'm a PT. You could take this conversation out into life. Like how do you look at the beliefs that you hold in life every day? And what evidence have you used to substantiate that?
3: Uh, Which brings up an excellent point and a excellent YouTube channel. Yeah. Street, street epistemology. It's amazing. Yes. Just you're trying to get people to get down to the nitty gritty of why they believe certain things. And the mental gymnastics that people will do to preserve their own worldview or belief system is informative. Yeah. Because it's not until you see that that somebody else is doing that that you can kind of inward you have some introspection and be like, Oh, yep. I probably do this all the time. Cause to err is human and uh yeah. <laughs> we just we just do this stuff.
2: I think Anthony's a great example as well. It's like he he is like a Jedi master at this. Like he goes to universities and colleges. He goes out to uh, to parks and walking trails and just like strikes up conversations with people. He doesn't know. And then in the most non-confrontational, low emotional, like engagement possible, just as them state a belief or a claim. And then they just explore it through open-ended questions. It's it's pretty impressive how he goes about it.
3: Yeah. I don't think I could do it.
2: It's, it's tough. Espe- yeah.
3: Especially about a science topic. I would just be like, no, read this. Right. I, I've, I'm done. I can't. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> yep. But that, that should also be informative of uh, the difficulty in changing people's minds, uh, particularly if they're attached for some other reason to that belief and yep. maybe why we shouldn't spend time on the internet doing that. But <laughs> that's yep. a whole other <laughs> podcast. So, Mike, thanks for joining us. Listeners at home, again, this is the June Marble Medicine Research Review. It is an excellent issue excellent formatting brand new professionally designed it looks like a magazine it looks great on whatever yeah whatever sort of e-reader that you use you can download it to your desktop it could be on your ipad your phone iphone android whatever it's all compatible looks great uh you can get 50 percent off by using the code research at checkout and you can get the latest nuance and health and fitness in your inbox every month again this is episode 100 we're giving away free attendance to one of our seminars so you know pimp our stuff on social media and maybe we'll choose you to come to one of our seminars and hang out uh thanks so much for listening we'll catch you guys next month see you you